0: Good morning. Oh, I've been asked a number of times this morning, how does it feel to be back in this place, back in the sanctuary? And the truth really is that there are no words to describe it, but the scripture reading does it quite well. I thank my God every time I remember you. Constantly praying with you with joy, with gratitude. Perhaps that, that's how it feels to be back this morning. It feels like joy, and it feels like gratitude. I need to begin by saying thank you to Reverend Dr. Ben Boswell, who is enjoying his sabbatical, so I see you on Facebook. That's a good thing. He needs it, and you need it. We all need it. But I thank him for the invitation to be back, especially on a special day such as this, Founders' Day, which is kind of like homecoming for you all. So I appreciate the invitation, and I need to say thank you to, to Dr. Boswell. I can't get used to calling him that. And I need to say thank you to Ben and to Carrie and the rest of the staff team and to you, the congregation, who has allowed me the honor to be here in this pulpit on such an important day as Founders Day, as you celebrate your 79th year of life and ministry together. It feels like joy and it feels like gratitude. It's so good to be back here. It's been three years since I last stood in the pulpit. It's hard to believe for me. (laughs) I know it's kind of like your homecoming today, it's Founder's Day, you're remembering your heritage, your past, you're standing firmly rooted in that, and yet you're dreaming ahead about the future, imagining together what kind of community, what kind of church God is making here, even now. But it's also kind of a homecoming for me. Not only am I a native Charlatan, which I'm very proud of because they're more and more rare as Charlotte grows and attracts a workforce from around the country and really around the world. It isn't just the fact that I was born here though, that my family still lives here and that I can stay in a home that truly is a home when I come and visit you all. The reason that this feels like a homecoming for me also has a little something to do with the eight and a half years of ministry and life that we shared together. Now, I know that in the scheme of things, eight and a half years doesn't seem like that much time. But when I think about it... And when I remember all of the major changes that we went through together, it's amazing. It really wasn't 16 years of life and ministry. It is remarkable how much we crammed in to those eight and a half years. When y'all called me in 2010 to serve as your youth minister, I was 26 years old. I was finishing up a second master's degree and I was engaged to be married later that year. I was a child, really. And you welcomed me into your congregation. You welcomed Justin. And together we went on retreats. You attended our wedding. You put up with his, at times, inappropriate humor. I'm sorry about that. You celebrated with us when he was hired to live into his calling as a hospice chaplain. You encouraged us to dream about buying a home when we didn't think it would ever be possible. You cried with us when we lost loved ones. And you cried with us again when we welcomed our daughter into this world eight years ago. You even at times crossed over the Catawba River to visit our home in Belmont, which Ben affectionately calls West Virginia, (laughs) to share a meal, to share some drinks, but most importantly to share meaningful conversations about the things that were happening in our lives and in our faith. When y'all called me in 2010, we had a different logo. You had a different website, a different staff team. In many ways, it was a different congregation. Although I see many faces I recognize today, there are many that are new to me and we celebrate that together. In those eight and a half years of ministry, we endured difficult seasons of transition. We said goodbye to people we loved and we also said hello to people that we now love. We watched our kids grow up and graduate from high school We created a strategic plan. We started podcasting. We started the Awakening series. We grew together. And we opened ourselves to truths that felt disorienting and uncomfortable. But ultimately, we allowed ourselves to be transformed by the Spirit of God. God was making and is still making us into a new creation. We were a different congregation back then, but that's how it goes when God's Spirit is set free to change us all. During those years together in this place, you, you people... The Spirit of God that lives and breathes within you and that resides here in these stones, these structures, and your bodies, this church became my home. And so, yes, this is indeed a homecoming of sorts, not just for you, but also for me. As a native Charlatan, I never would have imagined that I would live anywhere else in North Carolina other than the fabulous Queen City. We know it is the best city in the state of North Carolina. And I knew growing up that I would especially not live in Raleigh. I mean, what's the point? It's just another big city. It's like Charlotte, but it's not as cool, right? That's what I always heard. And besides, the only people that live in Raleigh are the people who desire to make driving in Charlotte less fun than driving in Raleigh. So y'all know what I'm talking about. I never imagined I would move anywhere outside of Charlotte if I stayed in the state, especially if it wasn't the beach and it wasn't the mountains. But when God calls, one has no choice but to follow. It's hard to believe that it's been three years since we made the move, but I suppose having two of those years being dominated by COVID, it's a little more understandable. Where did those two years go? But in my time away, I have learned some things that only distance would allow one to learn, some things that I never could have seen here from the inside with my native lenses on. And so today, if you will allow me, I'd like to talk about some of those things that I have learned, some things about you, some things about me, some things about our beloved queen city, and perhaps most importantly of all, some things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I never realized it, but growing up here, maybe you're aware, actually, I never realized it, but maybe you all know that Charlotte is a banking town. In fact, saying it that way kind of belittles the truth of the matter. Charlotte is the second largest financial industry center in the United States, second only to New York City. Charlotte City Center is dominated by two large banks, which call Charlotte home. You may have heard of them, the Bank of America or Wells Fargo. Another fun fact, of which I'm sure you are aware, is that in our beloved city, where the financial industry dominates the 8 to 5 workday, there also happens to live a lot of bankers. Yes. The city is a financial hub, and it takes an awful lot of people to make all those banks work. It takes an awful lot of people to fill all those offices and all those tall buildings uptown. And because those offices are here in this city, the humans who bring those banks to life also have to live and breathe here. So it could be said that Charlotte is not just a city of banks— but that Charlotte is also a city of bankers. And for our purposes today, I'm going to make a sweeping generalization and call everyone involved in the work of money Bankers. Now, I know that some of you are CPAs, some of you are financial advisors, some of you are wealth managers, investors, stockbrokers, tellers, endowment operators, etc., etc., etc. But because I know you don't want me to preach for 35 minutes today, I'm going to call you all bankers. Funny thing is, I lived here all my life. And I never realized there were other places that might be dominated by other industries. The language, the culture of banking was my native tongue, so to speak, and I didn't even realize it because I'm not a banker. But when I moved to Raleigh, which is another city just 167 miles up the road, I realized that people in other cities are dominated by other industries. Whereas Charlotte is a banking town, Raleigh is a city of science and technology. In Raleigh, the major employers include various startup tech businesses, SaaS, and now Google and Apple. Given that these are our major employers, it is safe to assume that just as Charlotte could be called a city of bankers, Raleigh could be called a city of techies. And I use that sweeping generalization to describe computer engineers, software creators, website designers, etc., etc., etc. What's truly amazing, though, about how these work cultures influence everything else in the city is that they creep their way into our churches. It shouldn't be a surprise to us, since we are indeed whole and integrated people. It shouldn't come as a surprise that we bring everything we know from our workplaces into our home lives, our social lives, and even our spiritual lives. And sometimes the things that we learn at work make it harder for us to hear and receive the gospel. I think today, you all, living in a city of bankers, living in a city with a banking culture, might just have a little edge on the rest of us when it comes to the parable in Matthew's gospel. At this point in the text, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure, and in doing so, he tells them a parable about a wealthy man who was about to go on a journey. And before he leaves, he entrusts his slaves with large sums of money, asking them to keep it, to hold it, to manage it while he is gone. Two, invest the money and their value grows over time. And one, buries it in the ground, a safer bet to be sure. But in taking the safer and more comfortable route, this one misses out on the opportunity for growth. And you heard the gospel read a moment ago. And so you already know that it doesn't work out so well for him in the end. For both ancient and modern followers of Jesus, this parable raises some serious questions about the accumulation of wealth. Doesn't Jesus teach us against hoarding up money? Doesn't Jesus say that the wealthy will struggle to comprehend and to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Doesn't Jesus call us to give it all away? Why then here in this parable does the master respond so shrewdly to the one Who buried the assets in the ground. I mean, he didn't lose anything. He didn't go out and squander it on unholy activities like the prodigal son. He simply held it tight, and he put it somewhere. And then when the master returned, he was able to give the sum of money back in full to him. On the surface this parable takes the side of the wealthy the land owning master who and it seems to support the rich get richer mentality on the surface on the surface the parable encourages participation in the systems of economic separation and oppression that continually reward those with resources to invest and punish those even eschatologically Those who dare to subvert the system, to take the safe route to bury the money in the ground. This doesn't sound like Jesus. This doesn't sound like the Jesus who spoke the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. This doesn't sound at all like the Jesus of Matthew 19 who told the rich man, if you wish to be perfect, go and sell all that you have and give the money to the poor, then come and follow me. Could it be that Jesus is doing something different here? using the language of money culture to define and describe the behaviors of Christian discipleship? Could it be that this parable is not about money at all, but about our investment of something far more valuable than talents or dollars or stocks or bonds or retirement accounts? Could it be that Jesus is teaching us about how to behave in his absence, using the economic language of this world and applying it to the spiritual language of God's world? And if that's the case, then what are we doing with all that God has entrusted to us? If that's the case, how are we to manage To keep, to hold, and to invest the things that God has so lavishly entrusted to us, things like grace and forgiveness and mercy and welcome and freedom and all the love that we ourselves have found in God. What are we to do with all of that valuable stuff? Are we to invest it in the kingdom market which values humanity and the well being of all of God's creation? Or are we to take all these assets and hold them close so that they couldn't possibly be seen or stolen or consumed by anybody else? It would certainly be safer to do that, don't you think? To receive all the goodness of God, to hold it close like our most valuable asset and then go bury it in the ground so nobody else could see it, to pull it out only for our own personal spiritual edification. But if Jesus' parable is indeed about discipleship rather than wealth management, then we might want to rethink our safer option. And this is where I think you all, beloved congregation of Myers Park Baptist Church in the city of Charlotte, which is a banking city full of bankers, this is where you have a unique advantage when it comes to hearing, understanding, and even living out the gospel. You see, you already speak the language of the financial world. Whether or not you are bankers by profession, you live in this town, and I know from my own experience as a non-banker living here that the culture of this banking town, it seeps in. You can't help it. Culture always does. And in this case, it helps us out a little bit. Because when we read this parable, we understand that investment is risky business. We understand that we open ourselves to all kinds of vulnerabilities, but we also understand that investment, in this case, is the better option. You are and always have been a people entrusted with a dream. A dream that is at its core God's dream for a more just, a more equitable, a more inclusive, more welcoming, more compassionate, a more loving world. That is God's dream that has been entrusted to you at Myers Park Baptist Church. And perhaps it is because of the banking culture here. I don't really know for sure, but you seem to understand exactly what to do with an asset as valuable as that. You seem to understand exactly what to do with an asset as valuable as God's dream entrusted to you. You see, whereas other churches and other Christians might be inclined to take a safer route, to hold the dream close, to keep it only for personal spiritual use, or to bury it away where nobody else can see it, you know that God's dream is meant to be invested. God's dream is meant to grow, to expand, to multiply, so that when Jesus does return, you might take the dream and hand it back and say, look, you gave it to me this way, and I nurtured it, I tended it, I invested it, and I took a risk with it, I'll be honest. Wow, look at what it became. Dr. George Heaton, your first pastor, used to begin every Startup Sunday, which is another Sunday that feels kind of like homecoming around here. He used to begin every Startup Sunday by reminding you of the dream. And then he would ask you the question what will become of the dream? One time he expanded and said, the dream, it does not belong to me. It does not belong to you. It is God's rearrangement of all that has entered our lives. And if we are possessed of it, we shall always be moved by it so that there shall be no place where we stop and there shall be no place where we tarry and fashion in permanent form something which must forever change. There shall be no place where we tarry to fashion in permanent form something which must forever change. In other words, you, Myers Park Baptist, and we, followers of Jesus Christ, have been entrusted with God's dream. Like the parable slaves entrusted to keep the wealth of their master, we are living in an in-between time, between the ascension and the return of Christ. And as we live in this in-between time, we are called to be faithful keepers of that dream. Not keepers who bury it away, but keepers who are bold enough to to invest it in community, in humanity, in the earth, in all of God's beloved creation keepers who will grow the dream because that is what dreams are made to do. They are made to grow, to expand, to invite and inspire, and to become something more beautiful than any one of us could have ever imagined. Sure, it might be safer to hold the dream close, It might feel better to protect it and ensure that it remains the same, that not a single bit of it is lost while we are waiting for the master to return. But the thing I love the most about you is that is not at all how you roll. (laughs) Maybe it's the bankers among you. Or maybe it's the culture of this beloved city that has taken a hold of you, but you are not safe keepers of the dream. You never have been. You are brave, you are bold, you invest the dream and you watch it grow. You make yourselves incredibly vulnerable and uncomfortable as you change and evolve, speaking truth, working for justice and growing in love that never seems to cease expanding. You are not safe keepers of the dream, but you are trustworthy keepers of the dream. Because when Jesus does come back, if you keep it up, you will have so many returns on your gospel investment. Yes, you're taking some risks. You've put up banners. You speak out publicly. You engage issues of great importance. You change, you adapt, and you invest in order to speak the language of our 21st century world. And in doing so, you are becoming, even now, ever more faithful keepers of God's dream. So keep it up, Myers Park. Don't back down, and don't look for a safer option now. You're 79 years in. You know who you are, and this world desperately needs you to keep on being who you are. So keep on. Keep the dream. Amen.